Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome back to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as always, though a little more edgy than usual, is... Where are my drugs? Is Ellie Mistal. Why did they take them from me? Who has decided to quit smoking, and um, he's... For the third time. Yeah, he's... For the first time that isn't being aided by the impending birth of a child. Yeah, he's... It's a little touch and go over here, so pray <laughs> pray for him. Um, but yeah, no. So we're we're here again to have a conversation about the law, and in particular, educational debt, which I think everybody who is a lawyer knows something about. We're not going to talk about like diminished responsibility for murder when you're quitting smoking. That's not. No, 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 no. Because um, that would be a good topic. Yeah, no. I thought we would talk about that when I wasn't in the room, because um, I don't want to give any ideas. Because I know. <laughs> who would get hit first. So, since you're not in uh, the best shape, I figured we would have a different kind of discussion instead of a gear-grinding moment. And so I was I was one of those guys who kind of enjoyed the law and economics thing in law school. Did you? you? Know, yeah. You know, the, the nerd is the yeah, word you nerds. use. Nerds. Yeah. Well, because no, well, I had an econ degree in undergrad, so it, it seemed natural to me. And so torts and all... But you were just too risk-averse to go to business school? Like, what was... Well, business school I had no interest in. I considered going to get an econ degree, and then I started looking at what working in academia was like, and I decided I would become a lawyer. <laughs> um, Fair. One of the few situations where I might have made a better financial choice. <laughs> um, so anyway, I... Um, no, I, it always interested me in torts and so on as courses interested me because I felt like it's important to have rules that set incentives and disincentives. That's how you should look at things, what you're incentivizing and disincentivizing. So I wanted to talk about football uh, because the XFL apparently is coming back. Apparently so. Um, and the XFL was all about... Vince McMahon just welcomed Colin Kaepernick to the XFL. Nice. There we go. It's all happening, people. Because we're on uh, the worst timeline. <laughs> uh, but no, the XFL, which when it had its heyday the last time, its whole point was to make it as dangerous as possible. Uh, there was no fair catches. People got blown up. Uh, Jeff Brom literally got knocked out on the field uh, at one point. So these, it, it was all about hard hitting. And now, obviously, we're much more cognizant of those problems. And it strikes me, I've noticed, and I, it came up this weekend a few times. It's come up throughout the whole year the new zero-tolerance policy that the NFL has on helmet-to-helmet hits. It's a, it's a foul, even if it's really fairly accidental. They're just going to call it no matter what, even if it's just kind of you run into them. Yeah, un- unlike the first 80 years of professional football, now the league specifically wants you to take people out of the knees um, <laughs> instead of the head. So progress. But my point is that I see these receivers get hit and this whole, they're a defenseless receiver and they got hit and this bad. And it strikes me that I understand the purpose of a zero tolerance rule, but from an incentive disincentive, it strikes me that the problem is the rule that we often call the Calvin Johnson rule. This rule that says, if you have a ball and you clearly catch it and everybody who has a sense knows you caught that ball, but it, you know, jostled a little at some point, that's not a catch anymore. And it strikes me that the NFL's strict adherence to this stupid rule 
incentivizes these kind of lead with your head, try to hurt people hits, even if you aren't trying to go helmet to helmet. They incentivize those sorts of hits because your job is to ring people up because then they might drop the ball. The risk of you getting called for 15 yards is less than the risk that you might marginally dislodge the ball. And if they would just... Plus $5,000 fine. Yeah, if they just would give up on this stupid rule about what a catch is, it would incentivize more people not to go blow people up when they could easily just tackle them. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that in our new future of tampon ball, this is this is exactly the kind of thought that we have. I obviously have a somewhat unreformed, unevolved view about football. I think of it more like boxing. You know, and I still can enjoy boxing. I can still enjoy the gladiatorial combat of two economically disadvantaged men um, trying to concuss each other um, for my betting and sporting enjoyment. I would kind of be okay with football being in the same. You know, the the thought process behind the X, XFL. I don't want to go so far as to say it appeals to me because that would make me look like an idiot. But I get it, right? Like I I get the thought that like some things are just going to be inherently dangerous. Would I let my son play that? No, but my son's going to have, you know, financial options. Yeah. Um, am I going to let somebody's poor son play that? Um, it, there is there is a gladiatorial aspect um, to my bloodlust. And so much like boxing, I'm uh, I'm kind of okay with it. You're a you're a true friend to the people. Yeah. Look, you're right. <laughs> let's let's be clear there. Your side needs to win. (laughs) What what I'm seeing is I have failed as a podcaster because I had what I thought might be an interesting thought experiment of is a zero tolerance policy against the hit or an incentive structure that makes it less likely that somebody do that. Would that be the best way of solving this problem? What I failed to recognize is that you didn't come to the table with solving the problem is a good idea, (laughs) Um, which is that that was on me. That was my fault. That's we got. We got to work on our communication pre-show. Fair enough. Um, okay, so we've got with us Jordan Weissman, who's the senior business and economics correspondent from Slate. Welcome to uh, welcome back to the show. You've been on before. Yeah, a long time back. Uh, yeah. I just want to say that um, during the opening of the show, yeah, I just found myself imagining Ellie as like dressed as Emperor Commodus, just like thumbs <laughs> down to some poor football player. He's <laughs> like about to get his head bashed in. It's like, yes, more. Are <laughs> you not entertained? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I just needed to share that. Yeah. Anyway, no. let's talk about that, guys. <laughs> My side needs to lose. Um, in happier, <laughs> in happier news, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, Jordan, is that uh, if you read above the law this week, I wrote about how. I am now free of my private educational debt. All of the debt that I racked up from private lenders from college and law school, um, as of this Tuesday, I have paid it all off. I am free and clear. And that's a particularly big uh, milestone for me because um, these are the debts that I um, went into default over and had a judgment entered against me over quite uh, about 11 years ago. Um, so this is so from the point 11 years ago where I was literally kind of, you know, a deadbeat till today where I have paid off those debts. It's, it's, it's pretty big for me. Yeah, you know, I was, I was reading the, well, first off, congratulations, man. I, 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 like, I, I was really happy to read that piece. And one thing that that struck me about it was that you managed to kind of survive having this giant black mark on your 
credit score, your you know your your financial permanent record relatively well. And I like like you said in it, a lot of that seems to have been your wife's doing. So you know, kudos to her. <laughs> right, that piece is really a, an homage to my wife. Yeah, like at good financial, you need to have someone in in the household who can do financial planning. And in your case, you married into that skill set. So so congrats. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. I'm 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 glad you made it out alive and with a house and with a, a basically functioning financial life. I just I'm really worried that there's someone out there who's gonna be like I, can, I mean, and you say at the end of the piece that hey, I am not an a example to be uh, followed. <laughs> I'm not. Do not try to to follow in my path. However, I, there's just like a part of me that worries someone else is gonna like interpret it that way. That this is that you you know I guess that's there's just I'm a little concerned there but i guess that's besides the point really in the end yeah so ellie does the it was it charles barkley the uh, i am not a role model ads oh, yes. or, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so, um no i think uh, look i was i was somewhat cognizant of that as i was writing the piece the reason why i wrote the piece was not to necessarily provide you know as you both are saying and exemplary path from that which other people should follow. Um, it was very much a don't try this at home, kids. By the same token, I thought it was important to to kind of tell my story and have that other kind of uh, thought process out there because there are so many people who will be facing uh, this problem, facing potential default, or who are really stuck in jobs that they hate because they fear yeah. defaulting. And I do think that it's important for people to realize, understand, remember that your life is more than your credit score, that there are more things to consider, to worry about, to chase than getting your credit score above 700. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. And actually, one reason I, I thought the piece was really a net good in the world in the end was that, you know, the bottom line is that there's just a ton of goddamn people in this country who are defaulting on their student loans, regardless of whether it's a good idea. It just happens. Private, you know, public government back loans, you name it. There's a lot of people end up with their financial lives in a little bit of a wreck because of education debt. And for those who haven't read the essay, it seems like you talked to my podcast colleague, Felix Salmon, and he pointed out that your old education loans are probably you know, owned by the third debt collection agency down the chain at that point. And you know, probably they would take a very small settlement to discharge. And if there's a message from that, I think it's that don't just give up. You know, it, this stuff can be resolved. Just don't, don't let it sit there and fester. There are ways to deal with it in the end if you end up in this situation. Exactly. A huge point in my story. I mean, look, the, I'm not, I can't disclose the, the final figures, but, you know, the, the payment that I made this week was not for the full amount of my debt that was still outstanding. After a certain period of time, as you're saying, as Felix Salmon once said, these collection agencies have already written you off. They've written, they, they are, they are assume that they're going to take a loss on your entire debt. And so at some level, whatever you pay them is found money. Um, and that does, leverage is not the right word, but it does give you the ability to bargain. It does, I think, Jordan, as you put it up very well, um, give you the ability, uh, reminds people that they shouldn't give up. And it's an important issue, and this is my little segue here. The Washington Post just reported on a Brookings Institute um, report that estimates 40% of people who took out loans after 2004, educational loans after 2004, will at some point default on those loans. Part of that is, is the long tail of the Great Recession. But a big part of that is the way that the recovery has been unevenly distributed. 
what what do you think about that, Jordan? You know, I think I have mixed feelings about this this Brookings study because a little bit of what they've done here is look at what happened to the last generation of student loan borrowers that's had about 20 years to pay back its loans, seeing what their default patterns were. And then they're kind of projecting that forward onto the next generation and saying, okay, if, if their default rate grows at the speed that the last generations did, how many are going to end up you know, you know, in trouble? Um, and the bottom line is that there was this little thing called the Great Recession in the middle of all that, right? <laughs> the reason defaults spiked the way they did uh, for that, that last group was because the entire economy went to shit. Am I allowed to curse on this show? I can't remember. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Got, oh, encouraging. Yeah. yeah, so the, the entire economy was ended up fucked. And so default rates skyrocketed, and that was, that, that was sort of a defining moment for you know, that previous generation and also for the people who had just graduated and taken out loans. So, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit nitpicking. I think the bottom line, though, is, you know, it's conceivable that <laughs> four in 10 people are going to end up defaulting. Um, it, it's not totally out of the realm of possibility. And in the end, like I kind of mentioned before, this debt backfires for a lot of people. And, I, you know, we should be clear what we're talking about when we say default on a, on a, a student loan. It, it's not always really a, a default like we normally understand it with a private debt like you had, you had Ellie. You know, you actually can just not pay essentially, and it'll end up with a debt collection agency. It'll hurt your credit record, but and it may end up in court or whatnot. But it's a little bit more like a normal debt. You can't really discharge it in bankruptcy anymore because of the way they, you know, amended the bankruptcy code. Um, but it's still there, there's some sense in which you can default on it. It's a financial transaction. There are yeah. rules for how the financial transaction works, but there's. Yes. Yes, so. exactly. It's like between two private parties. With the government, they'll just like garnish your wages. I mean, you can't really escape it with a federal loan. They will just come after you with the full power of the feds. They will get their money. So in a way, it, it's sort of a forced debt restructuring where you end up paying more than you would have otherwise. It's, you know, it, it, it's a really tragic thing that shouldn't happen because I guess you can't strategically default on a federal student loan. That's what I'm saying. There's almost no benefit to and yet it happens to so many people because they just don't know how to avoid it. And that's and it happens to especially, you know, low income people who don't graduate from college and go to for profits. I'm sure it's probably happened I don't know the exact default rates, but I'm sure a lot of people who went to for profit law schools uh have run into this with exceedingly high uh you know law school tuition bills following them to their financial grave essentially a key part of my story and i put this right up in the, at the top of the article um the default that i'm talking about was for my private loans um the ones that i think at that time i, yeah. I got through citibank i did not fuck with the federal government the <laughs> like <laughs> i was i was dumb i wasn't crazy right <laughs> like the the federal <laughs> government always got their money because i as exactly as you pointed out the federal government will come in and garnish your shit if you do not pay them back. Um, however, Steve uh, will personally turn your house up. <laughs> he will like, show up. <laughs> he will. He will show up with his wife, and they will just take everything. <laughs> they will just knock your shit over and walk out with whatever valuables you have. You I know, swear to God. And put it on Instagram. But that kind of brings us to our current administration, because I think that previous administrations on both sides of the, sides of the aisle um, were interested in helping students out, helping helping to make sure that students didn't default and had some different options. When you quibble with the Brookings Institute study, and I think you correctly so, projecting future default rates based on um, the past that includes a Great Recession in the middle. The Great Recession that might be in the middle for the current generation is the Trump administration, which seems kind of actively involved 
in making it harder for them to pay their money back. There's the story recently this week um, where Betsy DeVos has the education secretary has reneged on the Obama era promise that students who were snookered by Corinthians University, a for-profit university, that their debts would be forgiven. Betsy DeVos has reneged on that promise. The Trump administration is not interested in helping people like this. Yeah, it, it's pretty atrocious. It's really just a heartbreaking story, the entire Corinthian saga. You know, it's like one of the, I can't remember if it was the biggest or the second biggest for-profit college chain in the country. I mean, just a massive number of students getting processed through this diploma mill. You know, most of them were not making it all the way through the mill. They were getting ground up before they could get their little piece of paper. And then, you know, ending up with debts they couldn't repay. And the Obama administration, and eventually Corinthian shut down because the Obama administration, you know, essentially cut off its ability to get federal financial aid. It gave it the death penalty, more or less, without getting too deep into it. And state's attorney generals were bringing lawsuits. Basically, everyone agreed this was a fraudulent operation. And the Obama administration said, okay, we're going to create a process where you can get your loans forgiven because there's this thing called defense to repayment, and you obviously were defrauded. Let's just try to fix this situation somewhat. Betsy DeVos has decided to implement a new process where essentially whether or not you get any kind of forgiveness depends on whether or not people who graduated from the program that you were enrolled in make a salary that would have met the standards of the gainful employment rules the you know Department of Education put in place, but now is kind of retracting, yada, yada, yada. The point is she's literally put in place. The standard for whether or not a student gets debt forgiveness has literally nothing to do with the student's own financial situation. <laughs> and it's no longer really automatic. It's just, it's this bizarre thing to basically designed to prevent adults from being able to get their loans forgiven. And it, it's kind of a Rube Goldberg device designed to keep people trapped in their loans. That's, that's the simplest way I can put it. And yet that's not even the worst part because there's this whole rulemaking process they're going through to kind of iron out how uh, loan forgiveness is going to work in the future for people who are snookered, as you put it. Um, and the rules that they have proposed are basically a student has to prove that the college uh, intended to defraud them. And, you know, it's not enough if there was like a lawsuit. Like they, they have to show some legal standard of proof that is going to require a lawyer, probably an expensive lawyer. It's just putting up a giant hurdle that no one, the very few people are going to leap over. And it seems like her goal is to, you know, basically tell kids who, you know, who get screwed to, you know, Tough luck. That's that's her approach, uh, and yeah, it's it's just it's dispiriting after all this that you know essentially that we've got an administration that is. I mean, it, it's it's dispiriting because Trump himself, in his own weird and quote way, sort of seems to realize there's a student debt problem. He's talked about it, and yet he's just kind of left his education secretary to do this. Well, I mean, he did run a for-profit entity that he called. Trump University, or more accurately, licensed it out to somebody, I guess. But yeah, I mean, he doesn't care in the end. Yeah, like that's that's the bottom line. He like he kind of knows, but he doesn't give a shit. And it's just this is the battle that she has decided to fight is like saving taxpayers this minimal amount of money that will not make a difference to the federal budget in the end, but will make a massive amount of difference to these students' lives. For me, there's a bit of just a whiplash effect, and and you know, I, I don't like to. I'm not here to talk about the past, but you know, for a real part of 2016. I found myself in debates with people about whether or not free college tuition for all was a good idea and how that was going to work and who that would work for. And to go and, you know, in a second, it feels from having that be a serious proposal that was kind of on the table to now students who got 
clearly defrauded, can't even get their money back from it because the person making the rules has his own fraudulent for-profit university where it's important for them to make sure uh, uh, that in the future those places are protected. It's just amazing the breadth of the policy debate in the course of the past two years. Yeah, it is. I mean, I remember I wrote a piece about how forgiving all student loan debt just in one grand, you know, debt jubilee wasn't necessarily a great idea. And I got, you know, yelled at by the left for being a fascist or whatnot. <laughs> it was like, it's like, well, okay, no, now we're seeing what actually happens when, <laughs> when the conservatives get in control. And it's, it's, it, it's so transparent, right? Like Betsy DeVos also has some, I'm not saying she's doing this for her own financial benefit, but, you know, her, her family's vast, you know, holdings include some some connections to the for-profit or education industry as well. I mean, it's it's so deeply embedded, and for-profit education in general is just so deeply embedded in you know the entire conservative movement. I mean, they go there's really sort of a hand and glove relationship there. You think about like you know Jeb Bush and all of that as well. It's you have a situation now where you have two parties which are just like diametrically opposite approaches to what education should be and how we should fund it. And I think you're right. We're gonna kind of as long as Americans do keep electing Republicans once in a while, we're going to ping pong between them. And it makes it really hard to kind of plan. I think it does. Make, it may make it hard for people to plan long-term their financial futures because policy just changes. Before we let you go, um, I want to move off of for-profits and get to graduate schools because the other, the other thing that the Trump administration yeah. seems very interested in and we can debate why they're so interested in this. Um, but it's, they seem pretty uh, interested in making it harder for people to go to graduate school. If you look at Trump's budget, yeah. and even when I say look at Trump's budget, I'm not being entirely fair because I'm kind of saying let's look at some back-of-the-napkin calculations Trump has thrown out there in a document that will never, ever get passed by the Congress, even as he controls both houses, right? So I am I understand that I'm talking about vaporware at this point. <laughs> However, if you look at Trump's budget, um, it's pretty clear that he wants a massive change into debt repayment programs. He wants to cancel the public service loan forgiveness program entirely. He wants to keep IBR, that's income-based repayment, generally uh, uh, generously for college students, but completely throttle it for graduate students, which, you know, is going to be a lot of our people listening here, um, which would affect law students. Jordan, what do you think that's about? Do you think that has any chance of passing both houses, assuming Trump keeps control of both houses? Do you think that has any chance of passing both houses kind of as it is? Like, how scared should you be? I should preface this by saying the the public service loan forgiveness program, uh, I have I'm like conflicted out the wazoo on that, <laughs> as, um, <laughs> okay. as some reporters like to put it. You know, my wife's a prosecutor. She took out loan, loans for, to go to Georgetown, which has a runs a notorious hustle with how they have sort of managed to give their students free education through the combination of that and you know income-based repayment program. Um, and frankly, it's, the Georgetown program has been used as a example of why public service loans forgiveness should be gotten rid of. So, speaking about that program specifically. I think they want to get rid of it for new bars for, for two sort of distinct reasons. One is there is a contingent of conservative wonks out there who are just sort of outraged about the money and the way it's being spent. And they think that it benefits doctors and lawyers too much who they think of as 
the rich, well-off, or upper-middle-class people, which is a little weird, which in some cases is weird because it benefits you know, people like public defenders and prosecutors, but it also does you know, benefit some doctors at nonprofit hospitals who are bringing down high six figures. So you can kind of see where the program doesn't always exactly accomplish what it is meant to. And my response to them is usually like, listen, I would really maybe care about what you have to say on this subject and the way we're wasting money if the Republican Party hadn't just passed a one point whatever trillion dollar tax cut that will primarily benefit capital. Um, and like deliver us all to like a Piketty-esque nightmare. It's like, you know, fiscal prudence does not matter. I do not give a shit. I want, there should be a program that makes it possible to be a public defender in this country. Right. And you know, end story. That's, that is, and I've had this exact rant to people like, you know, Jason Delisle at, you know, American Enterprise Institute guys, you know, I'm, I'm not shy about it. And frankly, I should also say, you know, they, again, they want to end this program for new borrowers or they want to limit it for new borrowers where it would, you know, be capped at $57,000, which if you're in law school is equivalent to pretty much ending it for a lot of people. So I, I don't think I personally stand to lose out. If you are currently on it, I don't think you stand to lose out. That said, they've been doing some funky stuff with whether or not, you know, your job actually qualifies and certifying that you've made enough payments. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Department of Ed in the, you're talking about how they are trying to trap students in their debts. I would not be surprised if they played games with this in the future as, as more people um, hit the 10-year mark. You know, why are they trying to cut off debt to grad students more generally or limit IBR? I think there's a little bit of it that like the upper middle class is now the enemy, right? Like that's, that's mm-hmm. the Republican Party's enemy. <laughs> it's like people who live in the suburbs and have professional jobs now vote Democrat. So it's not a class they feel compelled to cater to. And so I could sort of see in a Republican-controlled Congress something like this passing. On the other hand, I think you might agree with me, Ellie. There's some rational public policy argument for limiting the amount of debt you can take out in grad school. The unlimited, you know, the unlimited plus loan hustle that we've got going now is not necessarily benefiting people. It's right. almost certainly leading to you know, tuition inflation at law schools and med schools and whatnot. So, you know, I think there's a good way to do it. I think, you know, limiting what you can pay back through IBR is not necessarily how I'd go about it. I think you make such a good point, and and I try to emphasize this in in various ways. But there is a legitimate, reasonable people policy debate that needs to happen on how we fund higher education. Clearly, unlimited loan payments, the ability to take out unlimited loans – for schools and especially graduate schools clearly has led to an explosion in the cost of graduate schools. And we have to find some way of reining that in. So I think that you could have people have really interesting, innovative ideas about how to attack that problem. You can only have that debate if you're kind of debating in good faith and you're trying to work out a policy solution amongst people who are generally positive about the ability of people, regardless of their family income, to be able to go to school and to be able to go to a good school. And we can't have that debate because, for the most part, the Republican Party seems to be unwilling to even accept that basic premise that people who are poor deserve to be able to go to school. It's like if you had a debate about whether how to stop concussions in football, <laughs> and then there was a fundamental disagreement... About whether you should stop concussions, yes, uh, and or whether someone should be fed to the pit. <laughs> anyway, that's the end. I think. Yeah, that that brings us all back together. Um, <laughs> I have no comeback for that. Yeah, th- thanks, thanks for joining us again, Jordan. Uh, Jordan's over at Slate, so you can read his stuff there. He's got uh, he's got podcasts all over the place. Give me your Twitter like, address. 
Jordan. Oh yeah, at J H Weisman, W E I S S M A N N, like a you know. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, okay. So. Um, <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this show, everybody. If you aren't reading Above the Law, you should be. If you aren't subscribing to this podcast, you should be. You should give all the reviews and that sort of thing that helps more people see it in their searching. Uh, I'm at Joseph Patrice on Twitter. Ellie is at LLENYC on Twitter. Uh, that, uh, well, you subscribe to the Legal Talk Network app that, where you can see other shows by the Legal Talk Network, too. And with that, I think we're done. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be more helmet to helmet hits for Ellie's amusement. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 